not the usual opening, but Mark has a really fascinating show coming up. And we thought that maybe you just might need a little bit of an entree, and intro into, and now for something different with host Mark Eddy and Nick Parisi. Welcome to the show, everybody. It is going to be something different. Evening, Mark. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. How are you, Barbara? Doing nice well. Weekend. Doing well. Had a great weekend. Oh, good. So you, you've got somebody new tonight, and, and I think mm-hmm. this is going to be a very exciting show. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, this is not an obsolete topic. The Twilight Zone keeps attracting more fans. And um, it's like in early July, I had the good fortune of uh, being asked to leave the cornfield to attend the Twilight Zone conference in Binghamton, New York. And mm-hmm. you know, um, after having met our guest, Nick Parisi, or, or, I had him on s- several shows and then you know, actually got to meet meet him and several of his other colleagues from uh, you know, the Rod Serling Archives and the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. I, you know, I'm hoping to get so, so many talented people on our show over you know, the next few months. And it's like you know, they, they were really captivating uh, speakers, very informative. And um, let's see, you know, you, know, you and I enjoy examining history, like giants and stone chambers and mounds. TV has also been an as- a way to preserve history. It's a communica- communication device that affects all of us. And you know, out of all the shows, you know, we know what show like the Larch you know, c- comes from, and pork chops and applesauce and Hey Lucy. Little Buddy, but towering over all of them is The Twilight Zone. One of my favorite shows of all time. Yeah. So uh, Nick uh, Parisi is our guest, and his book, uh, Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination is going to be released next week. Wow, you want me to bring him on? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm almost done with a you know, little introduction. Yeah, uh, Nick is an attorney, Rod Serling scholar, board member of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, and game show host. We'll have to hear a little bit more about that. But uh, yeah, Nick is on the leading edge of you know, this you know, re- revival of all things Rod Serling and Twilight Zone. So we're going to have two hours of uh, thought-provoking discussion. So welcome, Nick. How are you? I'm doing good, Mark. Thanks a lot. That was a very interesting introduction. I guess, yeah. uh, one thing I do, I, I'm, not, I'm actually not an attorney. I work for a law firm uh, in, in real life, but I'm, I'm not an attorney, actually. Oh, so okay. I'll, yeah, I'll disabuse you of that one. And game show host, I guess that was from the conference. I guess that, that was, that, yeah. was that, that a reference to? Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Part-time game game show host, yeah. 
yeah, the um, it, yeah, that conference was really terrific, and I, you know, I, a lot of us have you know, just kept, you know, have kept in contact. Um, I want to have you know all the authors on who were, who were there, and you know, Mike has uh, you know, stuff in the works as well. So, uh, yeah, I just hope the audience is, uh, you know, will will enjoy this you know, series of you know, di- different perspectives on th- their involvement with you know the Rod Serling uh, legacy, and it's just intertwined with so many people now, um, and. Hopefully, Amy Amy will be on soon. On uh, have her on. She, she, she's my lunch date at Popeyes. So, on she, she, she's a real sweetheart. So I want uh, get get her on too. She has an interesting book. But you know, when we did you know the tour around Binghamton. Like there's actually a lot of um, places still standing uh, that Rod would have known. You know, can, can you tell us a little bit about what is there? The streets that you can walk down, see his boyhood home, and the uh, carousel up the street. Does yeah, there 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 are several uh yeah, several locations around around Binghamton that uh you know still stand from from when Serling grew up there in the in the 20s and 30s. Um his his boyhood home at 67 Bennett Avenue in Binghamton is still pretty much the same way it was when he was a kid. Um you know, they haven't changed very much of it and that is, you know, still there. And just about, you know, maybe a half a mile from there is Recreation Park, which is the park that he played in as a kid. And, and you know, the carousel that he rode on uh, as a kid is still there. The original horses are still on that carousel. And it was, you know, the carousel that inspired much of the Twilight Zone episode, Walking Distance. And they now have, a you know, a plaque or a, a, a marker in the bandstand outside the, the uh, carousel that um, declares it as, you know, the Rod Serling creator of Walking Distance. Um, you know, the inspiration for it uh, is that carousel. And, and the carousel now has artwork uh, inspired by the Twilight Zone around the entire um, top of the carousel. So different episodes are depicted uh, up there. And, and you know, not far from there is, you know, uh, what used to be uh, Central High School, Binghamton Central High School, which is now just regular Binghamton High School, I believe, but um, when Rod graduated from there, it was Binghamton Central High School, and they have a historical marker out front that says, you know, uh, uh, dedicated to Rod Serling, graduate of 19... Uh, I, forget, I, forget the, <laughs> I forget the year he graduated. I guess it was uh, 41, 41, I think, uh, 42. And, uh, you know, so it, it uh, commemorates that outside his high school. And then there are some other locations around town that have tangential, you know, connections to the Twilight Zone in terms of uh, inspiring certain uh, locations, or certain episodes, or certain settings in the Twilight Zone. How did you get so enmeshed in the Twilight Zone? Well, 
I mean, I, I guess yeah. That when I I started watching the Twilight Zone when I was maybe you know maybe ten years old, something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and I was, uh, you know, I was just, uh, I was just mesmerized by it from from the beginning. I was just um, something about it just just hooked me immediately, and and uh, I became a fanatic about it uh, pretty quickly. And and when I was about twelve years old, that's when Mark Zickry's book, The Twilight Zone Companion, came out, and and that book just you know kind of took my fascination with the Twilight Zone to a whole different level. It was, you know, it was for people who don't know or you know now. I mean, this, that book came out in nineteen eighty three or eighty two. Um, it's a long time ago. People weren't alive. You know, listening to the show, maybe weren't, you know, weren't alive when it came out. But when that book came out, it really was revolutionary. I and mean, I don't use that term loosely. It was it was the first book of its kind. It was the first book to take a television series and and a television series that had been canceled, you know, years before. You know, it's ten, fifteen years before. Um, and and to to uh, address it in that kind of depth that Zikri's Twilight Zone Companion did going through every single episode of the series uh, in that way was unheard of. And since then, you know, every, just about every series under the sun, uh, you know, at some point had a companion book that, that essentially followed the Zikri formula, which was to, you know, synopsize each episode like that. Uh, but at the time, this was the first one. So when I, when I got that book, it just, you know, I, it may be an even bigger fanatic because now I had this this resource to go to where I could watch an episode and then go to Zickery's book and read about the episode and read about what happened, you know, what happened during the episode's filming and, you know, maybe some things about the actors or whatever it may be. And, and this is the days before, you know, DVDs and DVD commentary and everything, you know, so this was like, this was my DVD commentary. You would watch the show and then read Zickery's book, you know, and so that, that, you know, kicked off that. And then just over the years, it really very gradually, I became aware of of everything else that Rod Serling had written in his amazing career, and and I became interested in that, and then just just kind of snowballed from there to the point where, you know, now I've written this book that covers Rod Serling's entire career from the from the beginning to the end, you know, in and out of the Twilight Zone, before and after the Twilight Zone. So, um, it's a it's a look at his complete career. Okay, uh, it, and Barbara wanted to step in here with a question. Yeah. Um he was really ahead of his time with the kind of twists he put into things, and and there was a great deal of social commentary involved in in all of the episodes. As I look back on them now, um, it it's uh, it's really quite amazing to get the the messages that he was trying to give to humanity before humanity was ready to hear them. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to put it, Barbara. It's. Um... You know, he was ahead of his time in many ways, and he he believed that it was the writer's job to to say something about current issues, to say something about social issues, um, and he didn't believe that that saying something meant you had to say something on one side or another. Just say something on either side. He he was a very big believer in defending the rights of everybody to ha to have their say. And, uh, you know, to address these things, and especially if you were an artist, he believed that art by definition must, you know, what he would say would be say something about something. It has to say something. So so these the Twilight Zone episodes were never just entertainment. They were entertainment, but they were never just entertainment. They were – he had to say something about something. So, so yes, the, there are so, there's social commentary in virtually every Twilight Zone episode that Rod Serling wrote. Maybe not – you know, deep social commentary. Maybe it was just commentary about, you know, some of Sterling's own uh, 
peeves, pet peeves or, or beliefs or, or whatever, whatever it may be. But, but he always had something underneath the, the, the facade, you know, the, 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 the surface that you were going to dig into. And I think it's a big reason that this series has survived as, as long as it has. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see it to see it used in a college course. To be honest with you, because uh, and, and sometimes sometimes messages are are hidden from the author as well. Because um, I mean, to serve man had had a great deal to. <laughs> I love to serve man, um, but um, you know, there were there were several of the episodes, especially that stick out in my mind now, all these years later, and. And it, it kind of, I look at it and I say, okay, so he's talking about society, the one where the girl was having surgery to make sure that her face looked like everybody else's and, and it turns out everybody else was ugly and her beauty was what was considered ugly. I mean, it, it, it speaks to really deep stuff here if, if you give it a chance. Oh yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, that's the eye of the beholder um, episode that you referenced. That's that's one of you know one of the classic episodes, one of the most famous episodes. And and yeah, he was making a statement about conformity. He was you know he was um, you know pointing out that uh, you know beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and you don't you know very simply you don't have to look like everyone else. And you know what somebody else might think is uh, you know grotesque, you know someone else is going to think is beautiful. You know so um, yeah, he he absolutely wanted to make that kind of a statement in that particular episode. And you know, there's another, there's kind of a companion piece to that episode, an episode called uh, Number 12 Looks Just Like You that uh, Rod didn't write. It was uh, based on a Charles Beaumont short story, and it's about a, uh, a, a girl in a, in a future society where everyone is forced to undergo a kind of cosmetic surgery to look like everyone else, and she doesn't want to go through with the surgery, and she's forced to. And uh, at the end, you know, she you find out that you know she kind of um, even she was she was affected in more ways than just physically. Even her mind was was twisted into being you know the the sheep. You know, she was twisted into believing that this is how things should be, and you know she should be like everybody else. And that was a very deep episode. Not only very deep, but incredibly pre- uh, prescient. You know, it was just uh, it it foresaw the the uh, the cosmetic surgery crazed by decades, you know, so um, that was a, oh, yeah. you know, a really interesting one as well. You know, uh, Barbara, when, when you started your question, you mentioned, you know, you know get, getting the message, and I think one of the things that I, I really got from, from the conference was, you know, it, you know, Getting the message also by walking in the you know footsteps of Rod, you know, just up and down you know the street, you, know, you see the uh, photo on the you know link to the show, and you know the carousel, and you know walking through downtown past the boss cause. You know, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, store store in a little bit, but. It, it, you know, it, it's you know it 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 really helped me to you know start on the process of you know get getting the message by you know, just seeing the same things Rod saw you know the landscape and you know the neighborhood it, and you know it, that really made an impact on me as well and then you know get, getting to meet. You know, you know, Nick and 
Mike and so, so many other uh, people, and, and it's like everyone just just came together really to support you know how, how one person re- really impacted their lives. Okay. Yeah, I mean Rod, Rod Serling was he was more than a writer, you know. He he that's you know if, if there's a, a theme in my book, it's a, well, it's a couple is that he was more than the Twilight Zone, and the secondary is that he was more than a writer. Uh, he was um, you know he was a humanitarian. He was a very passionate man when it came to the issues that were that were important to him. Uh, you know, uh, civil rights, human rights, um, you know, individual morality. Um, you know, these things were uh, things that were sacred to him, and he spoke about them. He was a very uh, prolific speaker. He, you know, during the mid-60s, he was a regular on the lecture circuit, and he would give speeches, uh, political speeches, non-political speeches. He would give uh, college uh, commencements, uh, you know, high school graduation speeches. Um, so, and a lot of these speeches are available. You can kind of track them down either either on audio or just the, just the speech, um, you know, written speech. And and you see, you know, all the things that were important to him are in these speeches. And and people were exposed to him that way as well. So you know, so his beliefs came out through his work, no doubt. But then they also came out in these other venues. Uh, very blatantly as well, and and they affected people, and people did, uh, you know, he he affected a lot of people, not obviously not just in Binghamton, but uh, around the world. And you know, you know we'll talk about, uh, you know, kind of start making a segue into your book, but uh, and does include in the. Uh, Forward uh, that she wrote, um, you know, we invariably let him tell us a story and how much richer we are for it. I yeah, mean, that was uh, uh, that was actually yeah, a quote. Big, from, yeah, a quote from one of his friends that uh, he said during during Rod's funeral, uh, during his eulogy. Mm-hmm. He said that, yeah, and and that's uh, you know that's something that um, the great writers. You feel that way about them. You feel that you are you have you are better for them having shared that story with you. That they have enhanced your life in some way. I think the best writers make us feel that way, and, and Rod Serling certainly did, and he did it uh, multiple times. Yeah, and, and yeah, so and Serling wrote the foreword to. Your book, so you know that must. Uh, you know, she obviously she can provide a lot of insight too, but you know having like you know the the, the you know family helping you out on this massive undertaking, <laughs> you know, really must have been a, a big boost for you. What what was that like uh, what, oh what, what yeah you're absolutely right Anne's um Anne's enthusiasm for for the for my work was a played a big part in in me finishing this book um her uh, she and her husband Doug uh they were both so enthusiastic so positive about what I was doing that it really did give me that that jump start uh I met I met Anne um, when I first started the book, I, I think I was—I I don't know how far into the book I was at the time—but I, I saw her at a 
Um, actually, this is kind of interesting. I saw her. Uh, there was a theater group in New York City called Food for Thought, and they were doing a dramatic reading of The Masks, a Twilight Zone episode called The Masks. And it was uh, in this dramatic reading, uh, Fritz Weaver was starring in it. And Fritz Weaver starred in, you know, two Twilight Zone episodes. He didn't star in The Masks, uh, you know, oddly enough, but he starred in this dramatic reading. And Anne was there, and she did a little reading from her book as well. And I, I met her there, and I, I gave her uh, my outline for the book, which was, and maybe I gave her a sample chapter or something. I don't really remember, but I know I gave her the outline and basically the table of contents because I, I knew exactly what I wanted the book to be, uh, thankfully. I had really had a structure in mind. I had a you know beginning and end and everything. I knew exactly what I wanted the book to look like. So I gave her the, a very detailed outline, and I had no idea how she would react to it. You know, she could have hated it. She could have, you know, said, you know, you're not allowed to do this or whatever. And and the next, she called me the next day. She called me on the phone and, and said, this is wonderful. I, I, I love this. You know, um, I, I love the approach you're taking on this. Just run with it. Do it. And and we became uh, friends um, from that point forward. And she's been incredibly supportive uh, of the book. And, and, yeah, she wrote the foreword for me, which was just, you know, which which was a thrill uh, that, that she would do that for me. So, uh, so yeah, I'm very, very uh, grateful to uh, to her for doing that. And she she also notes uh, how much travel you put into going to archives and uh, you discovered some other collections. I, you know, can, can you tell us a little bit about you know this wasn't just you know looking up a few things on Wikipedia. I mean this, you know this is <laughs> so, some pretty extensive uh, research to compile th- this authoritative uh, biography yeah yeah well it was um it, it took me about four years of of writing and research uh, to 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 write the book and and you know and then maybe another year of editing and kind of miscellaneous things on top of that but but uh rod sterling left behind an incredible paper trail he left behind an incredible amount of material and the bulk of it is in Wisconsin. It's at the Wisconsin State Historical Society. Uh, there's about 80 or 81 boxes of Serling scripts, correspondence, contracts, uh, miscellaneous things, all there. Um, it's all cataloged, of course. It's not just thrown in a box. You know, it's 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 organized to some extent. And uh, so that was, of course, the first place I went. And you know, to go through all of that stuff. Um, then there was another archive uh, in in Los Angeles at UCLA, uh, which is not far from where Rod lived for most of his career anyway in uh, Pacific Palisades. Um, there's an archive there of of several bo- several a couple dozen boxes I think of of materials there as well. Then there's another archive at uh, Ithaca College where Rod taught uh, late in his life um, of materials there. And then there's also there's an archive at the at uh, Antioch College, uh, Rod's alma mater in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Uh, I got some great stuff about his college career there. Uh, so those are the four main archives that I went to. And then there was also just in general uh, to watch the shows that that still exist. Uh, most of that was at the Paley Center, in New York City. I was able to watch. You know, they have a tremendous uh, catalog of television history, not just Serling, obviously, but they have a, an ama- amazing amount of Serling stuff. So I watched everything that they have. Then there was a couple of shows that only existed at the Library of Congress in D.C. I went there to watch those. Uh, there were a couple at UCLA that didn't exist at other places, so I went there to watch those. So I tracked down basically everything that exists, every 
every show that Sterling wrote that still exists on film, I, I've seen, basically. Um, and that was essential for this book because the, the idea from the beginning about this book was that I wanted to cover every single show that he wrote that was produced, either on, radio, uh, either on, TV, on television, film, or to some extent radio. So I had to see. I wanted to see everything that exists, and and if anything didn't exist on film anymore because it had been lost or whatever, um, then those were the scripts I had to read. So the scripts basically still exist. Most of them are in Wisconsin, but there are some that are other places. So I read all of this, all of that stuff, and it was yeah, it was a tremendous amount of research. But honestly, it was it was it was a labor of love. You know, it really was. Um, you know, for me, it was like. You know, it was fun. Uh, you know, I, I I kid with my wife. You know, now the book's done. I said, I want to go back to Wisconsin. You know, I want to go back. I want to go through the archive again. I want, you know, I really do. There are things that I missed. You know, I want to go back. You know, so so that was that was fun. Um, but yeah, it was it's pretty amazing the amount of stuff that he left behind. It's it's really really incredible. Yeah, do you, Nick, do you think that the House on Bennett Street you know, was really you know, contained anything that foreshadowed the bizarre characters and the twist endings of the Twilight Zone. You know, is it, or you know, where did all of this, you know, this imagination? come from well i think that no i don't think the the house or the neighborhood or anything like that really had much to do with that specifically he you know rod had a very well documented uh love for his hometown and nostalgia for his hometown after he left i mean he left binghamton basically to go to war you know so he left and joined the army and during world war ii and he saw some some heavy combat uh in the philippines uh you know and he came back traumatized he came back traumatized by war and and really for the rest of his life he was he was always looking back and trying to recapture that innocence that he had in Binghamton when he was a kid before the war uh, you know so so that you know it had a big effect on him in terms of shows like Walking Distance and you know or any of the nostalgic shows where someone's trying to regain that lost lost innocence lost youth or trying to go back in time but as far as the twists and you know the uh, supernatural stuff and things like that. I think that was just a product of his tastes. You know, he was when he was a kid. He grew up listening to radio series like, you know, The Shadow and Lights Out, and and he loved com- you know comic books and you know King Kong was one of his all time favorite movies. He uh, you know he loved science fiction. He loved fantasy, and and he tried writing that kind of. Uh, thing pretty much right away uh you know very early on long before the twilight zone he at least you know tried his hand at writing uh fantasy or you know light science fiction so to speak and and so the twist and the twist endings were kind of you know i do think that some of the twist endings may have been uh, um inspired by his his military service i think some of the irony or the absurdity of of war um, had an effect on him, you know, in, in kind of a catch-22 way or, or you know, a Slaughterhouse-Five kind of way, you know, that, you know, once you get back from that kind of horror that, you know, some people address it in 
irony. They address it in absurdity because that's the only way to deal with it. And he was very clear that he went into writing as, as, a, as a therapy. He went into writing to get some of this off his chest, to write about the trauma that he'd been through. Uh, so, so that was certainly part of that. And it all, you know, all comes together in the uh in the creative mind and he was a very very bright man and and um you know he put that all together and and used it to create this body of work when um let's see the conference started what friday night at the uh, Rod Serling archive at the Bundy Museum, uh, Mike showed uh, After Hours in Mirror Image, and, you know, those were uh, two, you know, both of them are uh, some pretty intriguing episodes that uh, are based on his experiences and uh, Binghamton, besides uh, you know a walking distance, uh, you know. So, so how do you know those uh, two uh, episodes fit in with the you know what he remembered from his childhood, the nostalgia of uh, Binghamton? Well, you know, actually, I think I think first I should probably um, you know clarify for people what what we're actually talking about when we're talking about the the conference. Um, you know, as we um, the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation we had a uh, something called Serling Fest. Uh, it was around it was um, in the first week of July, uh, right after the Fourth of July, and um, it was a two day event for us. But then we did start it on the Friday night at the uh, the Bundy Museum in in Binghamton. Uh, Mike Pfeiffer there is the the curator, and he showed those couple of episodes. Um, but yeah, and the, the year before we did a Serling Fest as well. So we're planning to do these every year. And next year is the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone's debut in, in 1959. So we're hoping to have an even bigger event next year. Uh, but yeah, Mike picked those two episodes because they do have some references to Binghamton in them, both of them. Um, Mirror Image particularly, uh, it takes place mostly in a bus station, or pretty much solely in a bus station. And the bus station has has uh, ver- is, have some uh, similarities to the uh, the Binghamton bus station, or the uh, you know the bus station is very close to the to the Bundy Museum actually. Um, this you know the the placing of of the waiting room and the and the ticket counter and that kind of thing. So so yeah, so that just that location somewhat uh, influenced that that episode. But in terms of the um, and you know in the, in the episode, one of the characters mentions that he's on his way from from uh, Syracuse to Binghamton, and he had to take or he had to take a cab from Binghamton to the to the train station. Or to the bus station, and so the the area is referenced. Uh, but the idea of the episode itself, I don't think was, you know, the story itself was uh, influenced by anything that happened in Binghamton or anything like that. But and the and the after hours is uh, you know the episode where a, a woman is shopping in a department store, and she takes an elevator up to the ninth floor and. There's nobody on the in the ninth floor except for one sales lady, and there's no merchandise except for the one thing that she was looking for, which is a gold thimble. And she buys the gold thimble, and then finds out it's 
damaged, so she wants to return it, and she can't find the ninth floor. And everybody tells her there is no ninth floor in this this department store. And it turns out that you know she's a mannequin. And in this department store, there's a group of mannequins who they each take turns being human for a month. And it was her turn to be human, and she forgot that she was a mannequin. She was so so um, in, enthralled with being human that she forgot to go back. And they had to train, you know, you know, lure her back to being a mannequin so the next mannequin could take her turn to be to be human for a month. Um, and the department store that uh, it takes place in, again, was uh, influenced by Boscov's uh, department store in Binghamton. Uh, so the setting, yes, uh, it was inspired by that. But again, I don't think there was anything about you know about the mannequins or anything like that 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 Binghamton inspired really. Uh, but the, the settings, yes. Huh, I, I I've got a question. If I can hop in, um, sure. sure. It it ran it, it ran for five seasons. There were like 156 or so episodes. How many of them did he actually write himself? He wrote 92 of the 156 episodes. Uh, which is unheard of. That's that's just ridiculous. Nobody writes 92 episodes of anything over a five-year span. It was just incredible. And two-thirds of them were originals. Uh, 77, I think, were originals. Uh, the rest were adaptations. Um, and some of the adaptations might have well might as well have been originals because he completely rewrote the source material. So, so it really is amazing. Now, not all of them were great. He wrote plenty of bad ones. I mean, you just can't write that much and not have some bad stuff come out as well. But it's incredible how much good stuff he did write for the Twilight Zone and elsewhere. He wrote um, an amazing amount of great stuff for other venues as well. But yeah, 92 of the 156. Well, were were other authors invited or did other authors volunteer? Uh, a couple were invited. He uh, Basically what happened was he um, ha- showed the pilot. He wrote the pilot and they um, screened it and when they screened it, he invited a couple of writers, uh, namely Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont, to watch the pilot and see what they thought of the show. And they had already been recommended by Ray Bradbury. Uh, Ray Bradbury had uh, knew them very well, and, and Serling hoped that Ray Bradbury as well would be a, a contributor to the show, but uh, he only ended up writing one uh, episode of the show. But um, Matheson and Beaumont were the two other most prolific writers of the show besides Serling. And then they also kind of brought along George Clayton Johnson, who was kind of a protege of theirs. And he was a very uh, beginner at the time. And he sold uh, Rod some ideas and some, you know, outlines and things. But then he began writing his own teleplays as well. So between the four of them, that's like kind of the the core four, Serling, Matheson, Beaumont, and Johnson, uh, they wrote, I believe, you know, I I did it once, but I believe it's a hundred and, 40 or 138 of the 138 sounds about right of the 156 episodes. So so it was four guys basically did the whole series. Um, then there were yeah about 20 episodes that were done by various uh, that were written by various writers. But uh, but those four guys were the bulk of it, and they they wrote some some amazing stuff. I mean, you can see his flavor in in a lot of in a lot of the Star Trek stuff, and in, in a lot of you know stuff that has come after that. Um, you know, just just absolutely, you, you just know that they had to have watched Twilight Zone or been a fan of Twilight Zone. I mean, like, like in in Star Trek, the um, the one about the the little fuzzy things, the the trouble with tribbles. I mean, yeah. that that to me felt like it 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 was inspired by Sterling. I mean, he had he had an impact on an entire generation of writers, and you can his style um, throughout time here. 
I think so. And not only that, the really remarkable thing is how much of an impact he had on writers that are currently uh, very successful in television. I mean, you could talk to uh, television writers today like, uh, you know, like Vince Gilligan uh, or, uh, you know, um, God, some names are going to going to escape me, but um, you know J.J. Abrams, uh, you know Guillermo del Toro, uh, guys who are very uh, successful in movies and film, uh, you know film and television right now, who would tell you that you know Rod Serling is it, you know he's the guy, you know they they really admired Serling to to death, um, yeah, so he inspired people in and out of the genre of you know fantasy and science fiction just across the board. I mean Rod Serling won six. Emmy Awards for dramatic writing. Uh, it's an unmatched. No other writer has, has won that many Emmy Awards for for dramatic writing, and two of them were for the Twilight Zone, and four of them were for out, outside the Twilight Zone. So, his uh, body of work had an impact, you know, across the board uh, for writers everywhere. And you know, you mentioned Star Trek. Star Trek has a there are a lot of connections between Star Trek and the Twilight Zone. I mean, George Clayton Johnson, we mentioned, he wrote he wrote the first episode of Star Trek to air, uh, where no, uh, not, um, the Man Trap uh, was the first Star Trek episode to air, and that was written by George Clayton Johnson. Uh, Richard Matheson wrote um, the uh, uh, the one where Shatner gets split into two with the evil Kirk and the good Kirk. I forget what the episode name is, but he he wrote that one from the first season. Can't believe I forget the name of it. But um, and uh, Jerome Bixby wrote well. He, he wrote a, Twilight, a Star Trek episode, and Rod Serling adapted one of his stories for the Twilight Zone. So there were all these connections between the two, and of course, many, many actors were on both series as well. And Gene Roddenberry was a friend of Serling's. He he delivered one of Serling's eulogies, in, you know, at the at the funeral in in, in California. Uh, he, w- he admired Serling very much, and yeah, I think Serling definitely had an, an influence on him, and he would probably admit that if he was still around uh, today. I think he's in space, isn't he? Rod and Mary? Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, he was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, he was. He was launched. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, his work has has always fascinated me because to me it was, you know, I always I, I love reading, and if you know I'm reading something and there's a mystery of some sort, ninety percent of the time I have it figured out before I get to the end of the book. But with his stuff. Um, always he he caught me and I went oh shoot you know that that was good you know <laughs> yep yeah yeah usually that's the way it was yep and with the other one um what um all, not not the Twilight Zone but um oh god the one with Mul- uh, Mulder and Fox um X Files yeah yeah and that's another one. Chris yeah. uh, Chris. Uh, I want to say Chris Claremont, Chris, Chris, um, Chris, Chris Carter, Chris Carter. Yeah, he's another he's another Sterling fan. Absolutely, yeah. J. Michael Straczynski from Babylon Five, another big Sterling fan. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, see, the list goes on and on. Uh, uh, probably yeah. Battlestar Galactica was had some kind of connection as well. I mean, it's like so so so, so many shows that are influencing us today. What would never uh, even ancient aliens? You know, there's connection with Barbara. And like, yeah, you know, they may never have been even shows if it wouldn't have been for the Twilight Zone. 
Yeah, it's possible. And, and, and actually, those shows, you know, could very easily be traced back to two shows that uh, certainly didn't write, but he narrated. He narrated In Search of Ancient Mysteries and In Search of Ancient Astronauts, which were huge hits at the time in 1970 two or three, uh, based on Chariots of the Gods, and, uh, you know, those were big ratings hits, and they spawned the show In Search Of, which Serling was going to narrate, um, but it was, you know, that was very close to his death, and, and, you know, he died before he had a chance to do it, and and Leonard Nimoy, of course, took it over, but, but yeah, those two particular shows, and he also narrated other things that were similar, Um, you know, The Outer Space Connection was one, um, UFO was past, present, and future was another one, so late in his career, he narrated a lot of uh, alien kind of uh, documentaries that definitely had an influence on on that genre um, for years afterward. As a person, was he kind of unique and isolate, or was he just, it feels to me like someone with this kind of a gift kind of curves their own space out and doesn't really join in a lot of stuff. Um, no, in Sterling's case, uh, he was he was like most writers in that writers, you know, it is a solitary business, and when he was writing, he was by himself, and he would lock himself away in his office, and you know, either on the the grounds at you know, uh, you know, his office in Pacific Palisades, or when he was in Ithaca, the the um, the house on the lake, he would you know be on his own there, dictating his his scripts because he dictated everything. He didn't actually type; he, he dictated, which is very very strange. But when he wasn't writing, he was a very social uh, person. He was uh, a very gregarious, a very um, very friendly guy you know he he wanted to, to be around people uh he was he did not want to be alone so yeah no he was uh, he had lots of friends and he was he was very social yeah and, and Nick, speaking of the um um i'm just looking for that there it is the um uh you know, doing the dictation uh you know, the Bundy Museum has what his dictaphone on display there. I think so. Yeah, I think they have the, one, yeah, one of the them. pamphlet. Yeah, one of them anyway. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, he um he you know he he typed oh. in the early days when he first started writing. Of course, he mm-hmm. typed his scripts, and then right around 1954 or five, he began dictating, and he never looked back. He he he. He just could get the thoughts out quicker that way, and he um, mm-hmm. what he would do is, of course, he would dictate it. Somebody would type it up and give it to him, and then, of course, he would go through it, and then he would make his notes and you know write on the script itself and have it re- retyped or whatever. But he, that first draft always came out uh, dictated, and no other. I mean, it's just uh, it's a strange way to write. No other. Uh, you know, there's plenty of writers who will say he, they have no idea how he did. It. I have no idea how he did it. It's just it's it's very it's very strange it's very it's unique um but that's it worked for him and he was able to produce an incredible amount of stuff that way and you know during the in the conference last year uh, there was you know like with the first uh a radio, performance. Uh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That it was like one of the first times it's ever you know you know really been played to an audience. Uh, you know that was 
yeah, you could. It, it was uh, a, 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 a Memorial Day uh, message that, and you, you, you could hear that voice. You know that what maybe ten, fifteen years later that is going to you know, start you know the Twilight Zone. But you, you could hear you know, th- this personality starting to emerge. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that uh, uh, sure. recent uh, discovery? Uh, yeah, well, actually, I think you're um, you're putting two different things together, actually. Um, uh, Mike Pfeiffer, actually, during his presentation, he played a, a radio uh, broadcast that Rod had written when he was interning uh, during college, and he and he oh. and he didn't only write it; he he, he performed it. He, he you know mm-hmm. he narrated it, and it was about the first Memorial Day um, and just about recognizing the 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 importance of Memorial Day uh, and this idea that people uh, could very easily forget, you know, like, you know, we say today about, you know, never forget 9-11 or never forget the Holocaust. You know, he, he felt that way about the victory in World War II, never forget, never forget what we went through. So so that particular show was, yeah, you hear the, the young Rod Serling, and he already had that voice. I mean, it, it just, he always had that voice, and uh, he performed that. And then the... Uh, the radio uh, script that you mentioned was a very interesting thing, and that was, um, you know, a really nice performance. Uh, I, you know, my um, fellow board member on the, uh, the in the foundation, Kate Murray, she uh, it was her um, dramatic troupe that did a dramatic reading of the time element, which. Uh, if anyone doesn't know, the Time Element uh, aired on the Desilu Playhouse in 1958, a year before the Twilight Zone aired, and it's today it's it's looked at as the unofficial uh, pilot for the Twilight Zone because Rod did intend it to be the pilot. Um, he presented it as the pilot to CBS, and then they shelved it, and they didn't want it to be a pilot. And Desilu Playhouse ended up grabbing it and said, "We'll we'll air it," and they aired it. And it got such a great response that CBS realized that okay, we can we can go through with this Twilight Zone idea. You know, it's you know this this other thing worked. We can we can do that. Um, but the newly discovered um, aspect of that was that this was not the time element that was aired on Desilu Playhouse. It was a half hour version of the same show that aired on a radio series that Sterling had written in 1954 called "It Happens to You," and. It had been aired on that show, and it's never been heard since. Uh, I don't have it. It uh, hasn't turned up anywhere. Two episodes of that series actually still do exist, but not this one, unfortunately. And um, this uh, troupe of, of actors uh, performed it, and it was tremendous. Um, and you could certainly hear that it's, yeah, it's a Twilight Zone episode. I mean, it's not uh, not as polished as the Twilight Zone would be five years later. But it's a, it's a, you know, for those who have never seen uh, the time element, it's, it's about a man who uh, goes to a psychiatrist because he believes he's been traveling backward in time, and he's been having these dreams that he's going back in time to the to the time to the day before the attack on Pearl Harbor. And the problem, he has this recurring dream, and the problem is that he doesn't believe it's a dream. He thinks he's really been going back somehow, and. Uh, the it ends the you know it ends with you know the dream progresses each time he tells the story he it progresses every time he goes to sleep and it ends with him you know again having the dream and now it's right the, the you know he's been trying to warn people about the attack warn people that's what's coming and he can't convince anybody that this is what's going to happen and the attack happens and you know his hotel gets bombed and the, the psychiatrist kind of you know, wakes up himself and says, you know, doesn't know where he is or what happened, and he realizes that, you know, this guy who he thought he was 
treating for this problem isn't there. He doesn't exist. He wasn't in the book or anything. He doesn't know what happened. You know, how did this happen? And the guy, and apparently, you know, and he goes and he finds out that this guy died at, during Pearl Harbor. He died at the during the attack. So how does he remember treating this guy in 1951 and when he died in 1941? And it was it was viewed as uh, too just too out there. It was too outlandish for the you know the quote unquote you know uh, average television viewer to understand they would they would be too confused by this ending what happened you know what's you know the, and so that's why cbs didn't want to air it and when desi the playoffs aired it as i said it got tremendous response uh and people loved it so that's that really uh jump-started the twilight zone now now he did borrow from other authors and stuff because the the one he had that he did with burgess meredith was the uh walter mitty type of man who just loved to read and there was an explosion. There was a nuclear explosion, and and he was the only one left. And the library was there. And then he steps on his glasses. I mean, that was that that was, you know, I I felt for that man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't help that but feel for his, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sterling wrote that it was adapted from a short story uh, by a writer named Lynn Venable. Um, it's called Time Enough at Last. And um, uh-huh. it's one of the classic episodes, one of the most popular episodes. That ending is just gut wrenching. Um, you just can't help but feel terrible for for him when it happens. Um, he breaks his glasses, and and uh, he can't. You know, all he wanted to do was read, and now he has all the books in the world to read, and he breaks his glasses, and his eyesight was eyesight was so bad that he there was no he couldn't read anything. There was no way he was going to be able to read, and and he's there in the middle of his the rubble, crying. It's not fair. It's not fair. And and uh, that's yeah, that is a uh, you know one of my favorites for sure. Yeah, no, that that, and they they had tremendously famous people who were taking parts in these. Uh, you know, towards the end there, I mean, they had, you know, it wasn't just bit players. They had real real experienced yeah. actors. You know, I mean, he, he yeah. really before though before Twilight Zone, what did he do? Well, um, yeah, bef- you know, before the Twilight Zone, Rod Serling was was without question the most prestigious writer in television. Uh, he was at the top of the of the of the heap. He was uh, the most critically acclaimed, the highest paid. Um, he had he won three three consecutive Emmy awards for best dramatic writing in 1956, 1957. I'm sorry, 1955, 1957, and 1957. Um, the first of those was for a show called Patterns on the Craft Theater, and it was later made into a motion picture, um, a feature film, and that was. Uh, that was for Serling. It was an overnight success. It turned him into a star overnight. And uh, for those who you know don't know what television was like back then in 1955, you know they may think that this is hyperbole. That you know what you know what do you mean he was turned to a star? He just wrote the show. What's you know what's the big deal? Well, a couple of things. One is that you know this was live television. This was the era of live television. And in the era of live television, when a show like this aired, it was like a Broadway opening night. And just as a critic can tank a Broadway show on its first night, you know, if, if the previews come out and the, and the reviews are terrible, that show could end immediately and never go anywhere. And the reverse is true as well. If a show gets rave reviews that opening night, it could run forever. Well, Patterns got the ravest reviews ever. Uh, you know, it got... You know, particularly Jack Gould in the New York Times gave it just a glowing review. Said this was the best thing that's ever been on television. I mean, literally, uh, this was you know it was you know, a, a monumental leap for the evolution of television into a, a, an adult dramatic 
medium. Um, and and suddenly Rod Serling was just in demand by everybody. He was the the golden boy. Um, and at the time, and this is I'm going to credit um, a friend of mine, Mark Dewidziak, uh, I quote him in the book about this. But he, you know, at the time. Television, television, and feature films were the enemy. You know, they they were they were um, antagonists of each other, and the studios at the time didn't want any of their actors to do television. It was it was forbidden. It was just it was one of those things you do not do television because they were in competition with television. They thought that television was going to take away the audience from the movie theater. So, so what television did actually was they made stars out of the writers. Not the actors, because these were anthology shows anyway. They weren't continuing characters, so it wasn't going to be the same actor every week anyway. But the writers could be, you know, they they could be capitalized on. And Rod Sterling suddenly found that he was a star. I mean, a a big star. So, um, so Patterns was an overnight success. And then the following year, Requiem for Heavyweight on Playhouse 90 won the Emmy as well. And that was, if anything, even more critically acclaimed than Patterns. It was a huge hit. And this was an hour and a half, the first 90-minute uh, teleplay ever written explicitly for television, and it swept the Emmy Awards. You know, best actor, best director, best writer, best show. Uh, so that kind of solidified his 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 perch. And then the year afterward, he won again for a show called The Comedian on Playhouse 90. So, and that was an adaptation of a short story, but it was um you know it was very much a Serling esque uh, show uh, starring Mickey Rooney, who was brilliant in it uh so there was those three particular shows and now at that point he was he was writing for playhouse 90 which was the most prestigious show in television at the time it was a 90 minute weekly live television series and he wrote 10 episodes of that series so when the twilight when he was kind of given the um the reins to say do what do, what, do, what would you like to do you know what, what, what's what do you what would you really like to do he had always wanted to do a science fiction show it was always in the back of his head he loved science fiction and fantasy and and he was also he was going through so many battles with the with the sponsors and censors about these issues that he wanted to address in these shows that he said yeah you know this might be a good time i can do that science fiction show i've always wanted to do and i can kind of slip this stuff in in a science fiction context and and get by with get away with a lot of stuff that maybe i'm going to get hassled for on these other shows so he went into the twilight zone and now he's done does 5 years of this show which is never a huge ratings hit it was never you know a big ratings hit but it was uh, popular enough uh, and especially popular enough with the right audience, which was young people, um, to stay on the air. So it stayed on the air for those five seasons, and it was a success, and it made him an even bigger star because now he was actually on the screen, uh, at least from the second season forward. He was introducing these shows. So he suddenly he went from being the most famous writer in television to now being a, a full-fledged television star in the second season of The Twilight Zone. So And his career was just you know was on its way from that point. No, so he, he after the series was canceled, he still had eleven years that he he wrote. What what did he do? I mean, yes. this kind of talent doesn't sit and do nothing. No, no, especially Rod Serling, he couldn't sit and do nothing. He was a compulsive writer. He had to write. He was constantly writing, uh, literally. He was just he was constantly writing. Um, and what he did, you know, the, the period after the Twilight Zone, I think, is a very interesting period in Rod Serling's career. I think it's been. Uh, misrepresented in in some prior publications, it's it's you know so you can it's if you read other other things about Serling, I think it's very easy to get the impression that after the Twilight Zone ended, it was kind of just a steady downhill decline for Serling until he died in 1975, and I think that's nonsense. Um, the first thing he did, unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, the first thing he did was he actually created a western called The Loner. 
The Loner aired uh, on CBS also in 1965, right? You know, basically a year after The Twilight Zone. It only lasted 26 episodes. It starred Lloyd Bridges um, as William Colton, the loner, a Civil War veteran. Um, and it was actually just released on, on DVD for the first time a couple of years ago um, after, you know, being completely, you know, forgotten for 45 years or so. And I think it's a, it's a brilliant show. I think it's tremendous. Um, Serling wrote 15 of the 26 episodes of it. And um, I think it's a great show. It was a ratings failure. It really, it, it's, you know, died an unlamented death. But but I think it's a great show. But so there was that. And then after that, he had a, a, a series of very interesting um, shows. Uh, he co-wrote the original Planet of the Apes. Of course, that wasn't until 1968. Uh, but he started working on it in 66. Um, so he co-wrote that. He wrote uh, the the political thriller Seven Days in May, which was very well received and a, and a hit film and a very good film and definitely the best screenplay you ever wrote. He um, he wrote a show called The Storm and Summer for Hallmark Hall of Fame, which was a big critical success and it was actually remade by Showtime, you know, about ten years ago, I guess, um, starring um, Columbo. Peter Peter Falk uh, starred in the remake. Um, that was a big critical success. So he had these um, he had these kind of uh, intermittent hits, and then he went and the last thing he did was Night Gallery, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, and that was you know a very very frustrating experience for him. Uh, but at the same time, he wrote some tremendous stuff for it, and uh, and that's you know and that's pretty much where he ended. His last credit was in 19 was the last episode that he wrote for Night Gallery in 1973, and uh, he died in 1975. Wow. Everyone should have that kind of resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, re- it really is an amazing resume, um, you know, when you look at it. I mean, he wrote over 250 uh, teleplays and screenplays that were produced for television or, ra- or, or film and won six Emmy Awards and plenty and, you know, a dozen other awards, miscellaneous awards, and just, you know, it's it's really an incredible, incredible career. It is amazing. And And so go ahead, Mark. Oh, I was just going to ask, uh, what, what were some of Rod's interests in reading growing up, As like Jules Verne or Poe? Uh, he uh, he loved Poe. I know that for sure. Uh, he was a he was a pulpy kind of guy. He read a lot of the pulps at the time, the science fiction magazines and the mystery oh. magazines and that kind of thing. Um, he loved classic science fiction. He loved, uh, but then you know he also loved Lovecraft and and Poe and and James and and um, you know he was very uh, very into that. Um, but he, I think he also, I mean, you know. Uh, all Quiet on the Western Front was one of his favorite, you know, favorite novels. Um, you know, he, uh, The Naked and the Dead was another of his favorite novels. He loved, you know, some war, war novels, of course. Um, so he, uh, I think his tastes kind of ran the gamut. But when he was a kid, yeah, I mean, he read comic books. He read, you know, he read the the pulp magazines. He listened to radio. He watched television. You know, so he was a he was a pulp fiction and a kind of pop culture of the time kind of kind of kid, and that all that all influenced him. Uh, Barbara, do you, you want to ask your qu- question now? Which question? I've had a lot. <laughs> oh, uh, oh uh, yeah, uh, I, I think both of us started a question at, at the same time. You said, said go ahead. So I, I asked the childhood reading. I, did Did you have another one? Oh, I have a ton of questions. Um, oh, oh, okay. 
you know, I, I, I it's, it's your show, Mark, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I just didn't want to hog all the air time. You, 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 you ask uh, uh, terrific questions. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I, you know, he has an inspiration for, for a lot of people, for sure. And I know when I was in high school in the 60s, that I, I I do think that that his his writing inspired me to always have a twist of some sort to always have to to always be to say something no matter how trivial the characters were you know doing there had to be a message and I think that's probably one of the most important things that that I learned from him now he taught in colleges what did he teach did he teach screenplay writing did he teach Writing, you know, philosophy. What what was he teaching when he was in in you know the academia setting? Uh, he, he taught writing in general. Uh, of course, his you know his his genre was screenwriting, so he did uh, focus on that. And his students primarily wrote wrote teleplays and screenplays. Uh, but I believe it was more of a, a just a writing in general uh, courses that he that he taught. Uh, he taught, you know, believe it or not, he actually began teaching. His first teaching experience was back in like 1951. He taught radio writing when he was, you know, just you know beginning radio writing himself. It was such a new, you know, well now there's new genre radio writing, but um, well, it was new to him even. But but he he taught that uh, back in 1951 in Cincinnati. Uh, but then he went back to Antioch um, during the fourth season of the Twilight Zone and taught at Antioch. And he taught several courses at Antioch. You know, he was obviously already a star at that point. Um, but when he went back, it was not like he was going back there just for his name and going to sit in, a, in an office or something. He was teaching a 9, 9 a.m. course on the weekends. And, you know, he was he was teaching a, a night course uh, that sometimes went five hours long, you know, to, to you know, an adult uh, writing course. Uh, so and he liked the teaching. You know, you hear you read um, some varying uh, interpretations of his you know of of his teaching experience, whether he liked it, didn't like it, or whatever, or how successful he was. He everything I read, he he liked the teaching. He enjoyed the interaction. He was he was a little disappointed that he didn't find more talent um, than he did, um, but he did find some. And but he yeah, so he taught writing there, and then and then at Ithaca as well. Late in his late in his life, he taught you know screenwriting there as well. And uh, I'm sure his, you know there is a lot of his um, lectures are still available. You can find them, you know, uh, some of them on YouTube. Or, you know, Rod Serling about talking about writing, and they've been released on some of the Twilight Zone DVD sets. And you know, so his writing wisdom is is there. Um, thankfully, uh, when I was writing the book, I had access to a, a, a bunch of lectures that he gave very late in his life um, at uh, in in California at a place called the um, Sherwood Sherwood Oaks Experimental College. Uh, he taught screenwriting there uh, for a three or four months, and uh, I had a, access to a bunch of those recordings, and that was very very revealing. So uh, yeah, so he he liked the teaching, and he went back to it you know a couple of times. He had a pretty extensive teaching career. Where did he stand okay. on UFOs and things like that? Because I know that you know there were a few shows that he really did have astronauts and UFOs in, but not a lot. He he was something of a skeptic, um, but he was um, he was very open to the idea to the possibility. And he, uh, you know, I, there's a quote from from his widow Carol. Uh, they asked her this question, and she said he wanted to believe. 
and I think that's a perfect way to, to put it. Um, he really wanted to believe that there were, you know, that they were aliens out there or that we'd been visited before, and he was very interested in all the different, you know, crop circles and this, these kind of things. And and I think he was taken by the Von Daniken book. He he really kind of bought into uh, a lot of the you know theories in in that book and the and the you know the documentaries that he that he did that were based on that book. Uh, so he kind of bought into that some some of that stuff. But he was a very practical logical guy and he 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 needed evidence you know so he was he was open to it but he was not going to be uh he wouldn't believe it unless he really did see some 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 hard evidence of it uh, nick you have given us some great information over the last 65 minutes you know so so we ought to just take a moment to say uh, if you like what Nick, Nick has been discussing uh you know what's the title of the, uh, your book where uh where are they going to be able to get it next week when it comes out thanks uh, mark yeah it's uh, the book is called Rod Serling his life work and imagination uh, it's being published by the University Press of Mississippi. Uh, it's already available for pre-order on Amazon now, so you can get it on Amazon now, and it'll be officially released next week, uh, the 16th. And it should be in most, you know, most bookstores. Um, you know, I was at my local Barnes and Noble recently, and they had a couple of books from University Press of Mississippi. So, uh, if they had those, I certainly hope they're going to carry mine. Um, so. You can look for it there, and uh, but you can certainly get it on Amazon. And I and I got to tell you, it's um, yeah, I mean, it's a 540, 50 page book and, and hardcover, and they did a tremendous job on the layout and and everything. The the cover is beautiful. I I, I love what they did with the cover. There's probably 75 pictures in the book. There's um, you know, the layout of of different you know different um different bells and whistles in the book. I mean, I re really think they did a great job with it. But so it's there and and if you want information about, you know, about the book and about Serling in general, you can I have a, a Facebook page that is set up specifically for the book. It's not, you know, a personal page. It's it's actually for the book and that's you can find that at facebook.com and forward slash Rod Serling Dimensions. Um, the working title of the book was Dimensions of Imagination, so the, the page is called Dimensions of Imagination, but it's 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 for the book as as it's cur currently titled. But so it's yeah, Facebook.com forward slash Rod Serling Dimensions, and I post there not just specifically about the book or to advertise the book, but to to uh, to spread the you know the Serling news, you know, and things about Rod Serling that people might not know, or quotes and you know uh, links and that kind of thing. So really, everything Rod Serling that you could uh, want to look for, um, you'll probably find on that page at one point or another. Okay. Well, so he was. Is, <clears throat> he was. Go ahead, Mark. I was just say, and that you know, the book is going to be out a week from today. Yes. But just. Check Amazon and yeah, yeah. Like I said, it is on Amazon already now, so you can get. It. And and in fact, if you're a, if you're an Amazon Prime member, they give it, they're uh, doing a really. Uh, I hope it hasn't ended, but they've had a really a good special a discount on the uh, on the book actually. So, um, so I would jump on that yeah, actually. I, I just got it. Yeah. Oh, terrific. <laughs> Still there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Um. He got in on on the very early days of television. I mean, fifty in the early early fifties was was when you know television really started to be 
commonplace in in the home. So that, you know, when this series started, TV had only really been something that people actually watched. And and at that particular point in time, they weren't even broadcasting 24-7. You know, the television went off at at 11 or 12 o'clock at night, and that was it until the morning. So he was in the early days. He was right in the very beginning of of television. He was right in there with with things like You Were There and the I Love Lucy show and, you know, all of the very, very early. He was a forerunner of what television has become, which, you know, the the shows are classics. They are definitely, they're probably on YouTube someplace available for people to watch, and they really should should check out some of them because they they have messages in them for sure and the the writing is just phenomenal you're absolutely about he he was a pioneer he, uh, he was absolutely one of the pioneers of television um he was there at the very beginning he uh, his first uh teleplay that aired was in 1950 this was you know at the very beginning of of television and he um, had written for radio prior to that, so you know several radio scripts, and he actually wrote for radio after that. You know, so even you know the early days when he was writing for television, radio was still the big the big deal, really, uh, for the first couple of years anyway. Um, but he you know he wanted to get into television; that was really what he wanted to do. Um, but he actually created a radio series that I mentioned earlier called "It Happens to You," and that was in 1954. So um, so he had four years of television writing under his belt, and he actually then did a radio series in Cincinnati. Um, uh, you know, so uh, so yeah, he was he was definitely a pioneer in the in the genre uh, or in, in the medium, and not only that, but one of the, the first series that he really uh, was you know that he really wrote for dedicated you know dedicated dedicated writing for was called The Storm. It was a series that aired only in Cincinnati. Uh, it was a local series. It aired on WKRC TV, not KRP, but KRC TV in Cincinnati, and. Uh, it was, it was a, it was a dramatic show. It was uh, produced and uh, using only local talent, Cincinnati local talent, and uh, it was aired live. So very few of these shows still exist today. Um, you, it, it depends on how you count, but kind of one to three episodes still exist of, of the series. And this was really like the first uh, dramatic television series to be produced on a local level. Uh, this just wasn't done. I mean, at the time, television was produced in New York City or, or Los Angeles, and that was it. I mean, you didn't have local television like this doing an original dramatic series every week, and this, that's what this was. And, of course, Rod Serling wrote every script, I mean, or every script of the second season of it. So um, so he was just always incredibly prolific. He was just He would just write... He was so productive, and so he wrote every script of, of this particular show for one season of it, and some of it's very good, um, but it was the type of series that he was able to cut his teeth on and get kind of hone his craft on a local level before he could you know, jump to the big leagues you know, in New York City and on a national level. Um, so you talk about pioneering. Yeah, he was a pioneer in the medium of television, and also on, on that local level, he was a pioneer as well. Nick, when you know Rod had it was you know starting to write early in his career and you know you know he's flourishing in late fifties through in the sixties with the Twilight Zone, uh, then developing you know, 
full-length, you know, two two-hour movies uh, later in the sixties. You know, what was Rod's um, way of you know, getting started writing for the day? You know, did you know, did, like have the window open during the summer? And just sit sit in his office and talk on, on his you know, like the uh, micro or the dictaphone thing, or you know, is he uh, pacing uh, on a porch or something? You know, you know what was his way of you know getting his thoughts eventually onto paper? Well, he um, he was a. You know, like most productive writers, he did have a schedule, and I, I think he basically wrote from something like uh, eight o'clock in the morning until you know lunchtime, one maybe one o'clock in the afternoon every day. So basically, four or five hours of straight uh, writing, and in his case, dictating. Um, and then he would break, and he might come back uh, in the late afternoon to maybe polish some things or whatever. And that was basically it every day. Um, I think he kind of spent the night percolating. You know, he spent the night having ideas, kind of percolate in his head before uh, before getting back to it in the morning um he wrote yeah he wrote in his office um i you know he he would dictate and he would you know he was a kind of he was a ham you know he was a ham and he liked to perform so so he would tell you that he uh he dictated his scripts as if he were acting them so he played the parts you know he would he play he said the lines as if he were acting them uh and he would you know be very uh, energetic about it so yeah so he would actually do this he'd act out the show as he was as he was dictating it and so whether he was pacing or not i don't know like i i tend to most pictures of him were him sitting down uh, at his desk so i kind of have that picture in my head but but i can't imagine him you know acting that way all the time you know so so i i, I bet he did pace with that ever-present cigarette, unfortunately, um, smoking, you know, just, uh, you know, continuously during this. And, uh, yeah, so it was either at the, you know, the Pacific Palisades office or, or when he was in, in Ithaca at the, the beach, the lake house, you know. And, you know, then he would, he would, he would dictate, then he would give it to his secretary and he had the same secretary for a long, long time. Uh, she would type it out get back to him and then he would review it. And that's, that may be what, you know, when, on days when he had to review something, he would come back to it like, you know, in the afternoon or whatever and, and go through it and make his edits or whatever it may be. And then, and that was pretty much it. And with the Twilight Zone episodes, uh, that was probably just about all he needed would he he would dictate the script kind of one shot and then get it back make some edits and and that would pretty much be it uh you know so he he was writing these things incredibly quickly and yeah remember he was used to writing 90 minute episodes of of Playhouse 90 so these half hour episodes were like you know lunch time for him you know it was like he could write knock these things out in no no time at all and which again is just uh, amazing that they are as good as they are when you consider that you know so yeah that that was basically his 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 uh, yeah. So a half hour show was actually how much time? At, at that time, it was about twenty four minutes. These days, it's more like twenty two, twenty one, because uh, more commercials. But back then, it was twenty four. Yeah. And and you know, and something that I find uh, amazing, you know, Serling always talked about that that half hour, twenty four minutes, and he would say how how hard it is to create. Uh, uh, 
an in-depth character, a fully developed character and a fully developed story in just 24 minutes. And the thing I find incredible is how often he succeeded in that uh, when you when you watch some of these, these shows, um, not just in The Twilight Zone but elsewhere, and you see exactly how he created this fully developed character in that 24 minutes by not wasting a word, not wasting a line. Every line meant something to that character, developed that character in some way, moved that plot forward some way. Uh, he didn't waste a word uh, as wordy as he, as he could be sometimes. He didn't waste a word, you know. And, and so it is amazing how often he succeeded in this, this, this very short, uh, small window that he, that he was given on that series and others. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, when you consider that we have two- and three-hour movies that don't fully, de- you know, um, develop <laughs> characters, uh, that that now, now now he's got 24 minutes to create a person you can relate to and then flow into as the story develops and then be shocked by whatever transpires. I mean, I when I think of the episodes, I think of them as much longer and that's to his credit because he he was able to pull you into the point where you actually lost lost track of time, which is phenomenal. And he had to figure out an advertisement in the middle of it all too. So yep, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, it's great. That's a great point. I had about the three-hour movies. I have a three-hour movie, and and you don't remember some of the characters. And uh, yeah, and he was doing it in 24 minutes, and and put them into your into your subconscious forever. Yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely. And, you know, he's, it sounds to me like he was very much like Hemingway. Heming, Hemingway stood at, at, stood at his typewriter for eight, eight hours a day, whether he had something to write or not. And it, so, it sounds like, you know, pardon me for slipping into the metaphysical, but it really feels like he was channeling this material. Yeah, I'm sure it felt that way to him sometimes, too. Yeah. yeah it just kind of comes out. It's, it's not if... if if he had the inspiration in his head and he spent all all night developing it so he became that character, he was probably able to write it far more convincingly um, in the daytime when he sat down to kind of put it onto uh, the dictaphone and then onto paper. That's exactly right, and, and not only overnight, but he would hold on to he would he would let those ideas percolate for a couple of weeks at sometimes, and then before he started, so so it wasn't like he had that inspiration and immediately jumped on the dictaphone and dictated it out. He was he was thinking it through for a while before then, so there was certainly that preparatory period um, before he he got it out. Now, does his daughter write at all? Is she is she? Um, well, he has two daughters, um, a Jody and and Anne. And Anne wrote a, a beautiful memoir um, called As I Knew Him, My Dad, Rod Serling, uh, that is about her relationship with her father. And uh, that, was, that book was one of the things that did that, that kind of pushed me forward as well into, in writing this book because it really did give me a picture of, of the man that I hadn't had before, you know, a picture of the father. Um, so, yeah, she, um, if she doesn't mind me saying, she's working on a novel now, so I, I, I hope she finishes it. I'm sure it'll be wonderful. Um, so, yeah, she, she writes. And uh, his older daughter, Jody, is not a writer. She went into nursing. And um, um, I'm not sure what exactly you know, she's doing now. Well, they, you know, they were both in their 60s now, so I'm sure she's retired at this point. Well, no, come um, on. Know, we don't uh, retire until we're older than that. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't say that, but, but I think she is anyway. Uh, okay. Yeah, uh, Bar- Barbara, do you have a feeling uh, we just got a, uh, another idea for a guest? Sort of, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, I have a feeling we'll, uh, we'll be getting a couple more books. <laughs> That's what I needed. <laughs> Well, I, I highly recommend Anne's book. I really do. Um, you know, I'm not. You know, it's just one of those things. If you uh, if you really want to know the full picture of Rod Serling, it's really a must read. Now, how long have you been doing this conference? This this yeah, this conference. Uh, the Serling Fest. This was just our second year, actually. Um, this well, ne- next year will be our third. Uh, but um, they have done things that were similar. Uh, see, this was more of a convention. It was more of a. Um, it was fun, you know. We we showed Twilight Zone episodes. We had, as we spoke about, we had that you know radio performance. We had um, different presentations uh, about different segments of Rod Serling's career. Um, it was a fun thing. But previous to this, they had two or three actual academic conferences about Rod Serling, where there were, uh, several speakers who got up and you know really went into depth of you know the themes in, in Rod Serling's work and that kind of thing. Um, they haven't done those uh, in a while, but there were a couple of those. And now, you know, we're we're continuing with this uh, this Serling Fest idea. So again, next year is the 60th anniversary. So we're hoping to have a big you know celebration for that because they did have a big uh, celebration for the 50th anniversary of the Twilight Zone in Binghamton. They had a, a TZ at 50 celebration, and it was it was very well attended and it lasted several days. And so we're we're hoping to do something similar uh, to that. Okay. Well, sounds fascinating. It's a lot of yeah. fun. It's a lot of fun to get people together and, and really you kind of, you know, you get all these people together who kind of speak the same language. You know, you, you don't run, in, run across these people every day in your everyday life, but but when you go to something like this, you suddenly find these people who are as fanatical about this man and this show as, as you are, and, and they know what you're talking about when you say certain things, and it's it's uh, it's a great experience. Oh, the, the Twilight Zone Jeopardy uh, people knew like every aspect of every episode. <laughs> I like, was I, yeah, I, I was yeah, impressed. I, I I couldn't process that that much information, and it's like, and it, it, it was like all, all these people knew like the most minutest detail. About the episode, and just like right off the top of their head, it's like, gee, I have no, I have no <laughs> idea. I'd have to, you know, get, go through the whole bunch of books, and you know, they just knew it. You know, as soon as you say, it, oh yeah, that's, you know, they give you an answer. Yeah, so they I'm are fanatical. They, yeah, I kind of took a leap of faith when I was writing the answers and questions for that. With that, because I, I just kind of hoped that they would be as knowledgeable as I thought they were, and and uh, and they were. You know, there was uh, the the team that won was was great. They 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 got pretty much everything. So yeah, it was really 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 great. <laughs> yeah, that that uh, that was a, a lot of fun. Just trying to keep up with uh, uh, what was that the cornfield rejects. <laughs> yeah, we gave them all different, uh, you know, strange names, you know. So uh, yeah, there was a cornfield, uh, cornfield rejects, and um, uh, oh, I, f- I forget some of the other ones. They were all Twilight Zone inspired names, though. Did, did uh, you know, in your research, did did you ever find out like what the town of Willoughby? Was based on. 
Um, no, there's actually a lot. Of, uh, there's a couple different Willoughby's around the country that kind of claim that they're the Willoughby that inspired it. But I, I honestly don't. Uh, it was, you know, the the story itself was certainly inspired by Rod's train trips from West uh, West uh, Westport, Connecticut, where he lived, to New York City. Uh, so that was, yeah, and the train that Gart Williams takes in that episode, they mention, you know, Westport, coming up Westport. So it's the same route that Rod Sterling took uh, on that train. Um, so that came from his life. But there's just the name Willoughby. I, I, I don't know exactly where that came from. I don't think really anybody knows for sure. I think some people might claim to, but I don't think anybody knows for certain. Okay. Hey, uh, Barbara, do you have, have a question? I do, I do. You keep hearing me okay. catching my breath, don't you? Um, <laughs> the, the Planet of the Apes. Um, he was on. The, he helped to write, or he wrote the first one, and then he didn't, you know, follow through with the others. Well, Planet of the Apes is a is a long story. It's uh, I, I dedicate a chapter of my book to it, um, to the evolution of Planet of the Apes. And well, the first thing I'll, I'll tell you is there actually was just recently a company called Boom Studios. They released a, a graphic novel that was based on Rod Serling's draft of Planet of the Apes. And it's a very good depiction of what his version of Planet of the Apes would have looked like uh, if it had been produced the way Rod Serling had written it. Um, Rod Serling was... Uh, the first screenwriter on Planet of the Apes. He started working on it in 1965, I believe. I, I don't, I don't have the book in front of me, but I, uh, 65, I think it was. And he wrote several drafts of it. Um, there are several different um, counts of how many drafts he did it for it. But basically, he did three complete drafts, but then he did multiple, I mean, dozens of revisions in between each draft. So there are like 40 different versions of Rod Sterling's script, you know, floating around out there. And after he had written that third final, final draft and turned that in, um, the, the film still, the script, the film still hadn't sold to a studio. Nobody wanted to produce it. Um, it was, it was viewed as too risky. Uh, the studios all had the same, uh, fear about the movie. And that was, how are we going to make these apes not look ridiculous? You know, the, the makeup was a huge, huge deal. Uh, they all had this idea that the moment those apes are going to be on screen, people are going to laugh at them, and this is going to look like a Disney movie, and, and just they didn't want to risk it. And But the producer, Arthur Jacobs, just really believed in this movie. He, he believed it would be a huge, huge hit, and he was persistent. He was the champion of, of this of this movie, and and he finally did sell it to, uh, to a studio. And I, I, well, Warner Brothers had it at one point, but then... Paramount, I believe, released it eventually. I hope I'm not wrong about that, but I forget studios. But anyway, um, it finally sold. But when it sold, they needed to reduce the budget. Um, the the that was the other big fear, of course, is that yeah, the the apes need to look realistic. But we also, how are we going to make the apes look realistic and then build a city for them and have a you know have uh, you know because Rod's version of the script was similar to Bull's novel, which is set in more of a modern setting. Uh, the apes are like us; they live in houses. They you know they go to work. They wear suits. You know they uh, you know they you know drive cars. You know so so that whole thing was like you know it was just it was viewed as too expensive. So we're going to have to pare it down, and they wanted to set it in a, a pre-industrial society, in that kind of Flintstones, bedrock kind of society. And at that point, uh, you know, Rod Sterling had been on the project for several years, three or four years at that point, and he had kind of, by his own admission, written himself out on it. He was just, 
he was just burnt out on the project and it still hadn't sold. He still didn't even know it was going to be produced. So he kind of in and and the the studio and the producer also were not satisfied with Serling's script. They, they weren't satisfied with his final draft, and they th- they thought the dialogue needed to be beefed up and and certain things needed to be uh, com- improved. So they kind of mutually agreed that he would that he would okay he he bow out of the project and they get somebody else. And they hired eventually they hired Michael Wilson, who um, took Serling's version of the script and basically followed the structure of it. He followed the scene by scene structure of it to a great extent. But he rewrote almost all of Rod Serling's dialogue. Uh, virtually, the, I think there's only maybe two lines left in the in the final version of Planet of the Apes that, that Rod Serling wrote. Now, uh, there's probably you know lay people who will say, well, then you know what did he write? He didn't write any of the dialogue. You know, Michael Wilson wrote this movie. Well, that's not you know a screenplay is more than just a dialogue. A screenplay is is incident. It's it's action. It's you know, it's a theme, it's character, and Rod Serling create Rod Serling's imprint on that that initial version of the script survived into the into the final version, and he did very importantly write the ending. The ending was Rod Serling's ending. Um, one of the biographies somehow gets this wrong and says it was Michael Serling, Michael Wilson's ending, and it's not. It's in Rod Serling's early drafts. It's there in black and white. He wrote the the the, the um, Statue of Liberty ending. So, so he wrote the ending and. Um, so the script is the the movie is is ultimately credited as written by Michael Wilson and Rod Serling, and that's the way it should be. It was they both had um, a, you know uh, input on this on the on the screenplay. Uh, you know Michael Wilson wrote virtually all of the dialogue, but he was working from Rod Serling's drafts. And if he hadn't had Rod Serling's drafts to work from, the movie would be very 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 different. Um, the first thing that Rod Serling did was he made the the novel. Filmable. He, you know, he gave it that thread of the story thread through it. It's very different than the novel. The novel is, um, the novel is, to be real honest, it's boring. You know, for the first third of it, it's it's a slow book. Um, uh, it's very, you know, very much a, an observational thing about, you know, the astronaut observing these apes and how they interact in the class, you know, uh, class system of the apes and everything else. And it's just, you know, Rod Serling was the one who, who gave it a lot of the incident. Um, you know, the, a lot of the things that happened in the movie were in Rod Serling's script. So, um, so when it was ultimately... Um, released he was co-credited uh with michael wilson and right after the movie uh opened and it was almost immediately a, a phenomenon it was you know it was a huge huge hit obviously and it spawned you know several sequels and reboots and everything else um he actually approached arthur jacobs almost immediately with sequel ideas and they were talking sequel ideas and he, he um submitted um a full you know outline of of a sequel that he would um you know that he would like to do. Um, I I talk about it, write about it in the book, and but it wasn't it wasn't used. And in fact, the scheduling just wasn't right for Serling at the time. He couldn't he couldn't do it. It just wasn't it could, he couldn't fit it in. Um, but you know so you know the rest is history kind of. But um, but you know he actually he he pitched that sequel idea, and then he actually was involved in the, in the Planet of the Apes television series that was, that aired in nineteen you know the early nineteen seventies. Uh, he basically wrote the Bible for that for that series. He gave it the kind of the, you know, the structure of these these astronauts who were on the run from, um, you know, I haven't seen the series in so long, but uh, you know they were on the run with a peaceful ape, you know, and they have being chased by the you know the 
more militant apes or whatever. And and uh, yeah. he wrote a couple of scripts for it that weren't produced, but he gave he kind of wrote the Bible for it. So he was involved in that. And then if if you happen to notice, but the the first reboot, well not the first reboot, not the um, not the. Uh, uh, the Mark Wahlberg one, but the, the later one, they actually the main character is is named Dr. Will Rodman, and that's for Michael Wilson and and Rodman Edward Serling. So they they tip the hat oh. to the original screenwriters in that. Hmm. Okay, and well, you know, so staying on the uh, Planet of the Apes uh, topic, one of your colleagues at the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation is uh, Gordon Webb. He, he, he was involved with Planet of the Apes too. He has a, a book on it. Can, can you tell us a little bit about his connection to Rod Serling? Yeah, well, well, Gordon is yeah he's a, a member of the board as well. Uh, he was vice president of the foundation up until fair, very recently, and he uh, he wrote an article years ago uh, that was published in uh, Screenwriting Magazine. I, I'm, I apologize, I forget the title of the, the magazine, but but he um, uh, researched the evolution of the ending to Planet of the Apes because um, for the same reason I had said that you know when when he read one of the biographies that said Michael Wilson wrote this ending, he thought like I thought, like, wait a second, that's impossible. How did, you know, that's such a Serling ending. How did Rod Serling not write this? And he went to Ithaca College and read the early drafts of the script and said, no, Rod Serling wrote this, wrote this ending. It's right here. And so he wrote a pretty uh, in-depth uh article about the evolution of the ending and some other aspects of the film as well and at this recent Serling Fest he kind of expanded on that and went through a lot of the similarities between Rod's uh, early uh, early drafts and the filmed version and a lot of it was as I said a lot of the incidents a lot of the things that happened were already in Rod's script so um so yeah, he he's been very involved in that kind of that research. It wasn't a book, but it was a couple of articles. I think it was published in a couple of different magazines actually. And and he uh, at the conference he really spelled it out very nicely uh, of how you know what what survived from Rod's drafts into that final that final film version. Okay, well, you know, out of all the just. Mind blowing Twilight Zone episodes. Which one is your favorite? Uh, I have, you know, it's it's always hard to pick. Um, I have a handful, you know, that I could go go with. Um, you know, for years, you know, again, I I started watching the show when I was about ten years old, and for years, my favorite episode was, ironically enough, was not one that Rod wrote. It was a uh, one called The Howling Man, uh, written by Charles Beaumont. Uh, it's about a a traveler, a weary traveler who uh, gets lost in a storm and comes upon a monastery and asks for shelter and and. Uh, he meets this group of religious fanatics who claim that they have the devil locked up in a in a cell, and if he hears the howling, don't you know just ignore it you know it's the devil, and you know he, you know just ignore it and uh of course, he frees this man who who he thinks is being imprisoned by these religious fanatics and turns out that they were right it is it is the devil, and he escapes and then he spends the rest of his life dedicated to trying to recapture the devil to make up for what he what he did and when I first saw that when I was a kid, I was just oh my God, I was just blown away i was you know I, I was again mesmerized by it it was just like and to this day i, I mean, I've probably seen that episode fifty times and and the dialogue from it is like it's to me i, I it's like opera it's like 
the David Carradine character who plays the main monk, you know, in the episode Father Father William or Father Chris Chris uh, Christoph or Christopher, uh, one or the other. But he might as well be singing his dialogue. I mean, it's just such an over the top performance, and the, the dialogue is so meaty, and it's just like oh, you know, it's just um, I love that episode, and I, that's still one of my favorites. But if I really really had to pick one now, I think I would have to take Walking Distance. I think it's just um, it's just so so quintessential Serling and it's so um, heartfelt and that's, you know, that episode, I can't, you know, uh, I can't watch it to this day without getting a little choked up watching it. I, I, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, so I, I would probably pick that as my number one, but those two for sure. And, and I always tell people that, you know, my list of favorite Twilight Zone episodes is going to be pretty boring because I generally think that the ones that are considered the classics are, are classics for a reason. And I actually, those are my favorites. So all the ones that you would expect, uh, you know, The Eye of the Beholder, To Serve Man, uh, you know, uh, Stop at Willoughby, uh, you know, Time Enough at Last, uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, you know, those are those are all amongst my favorites. Uh, to give you, I, I give you a couple of underrated ones that would be amongst my favorites. My uh, one underrated one is, is strangely enough, one that was not written by any of the regulars, not the top four or anybody else, but uh, an episode called "The Trouble with Templeton." It was written by a man named E. Jack Newman, and it's a, a very Serling-esque story about an actor who um, finds that he's gone back in time to when he was a, more of a star actor and. He meets his um, girlfriend at the time. I don't think it was wife. Maybe yeah, no girlfriend at the time. And and this is kind of a twist on the Serling way he would have approached it. But in this version, in you know Jack Newman's story, the girlfriend and and another one of the actor's friends kind of force him to go back to his own time. They they reject him. They pretend that they don't want him there. You know, and they they you know the girlfriend is mean to him and you know and and everything. And they re, you know they send him back. And you find and at one point you see that. That they have a script that says what to do when what to do when Jack comes back. I forget the character's name now. I can't believe that. But what to do when he comes back? Like they're actually working from a script, and um, he goes back. And when he goes back, you see the look on the, the girlfriend's face. She's just devastated that she had to do this to him, but they did it for his own good because he's got to survive in the present. And he goes back to the present, and he's now he's much stronger for the experience, and he can he can deal with everything. And that's that is just a, a, a terrific episode that is never mentioned under on um, you know best lists or anything like that. And it's amazing that it was written by. Somebody who never wrote another Twilight Zone episode ever again. That was the only one he wrote. Um, that's one. And you know, some of the other, you know, some of the uh, more comedic episodes, I actually don't mind as much as other people do. I really like a kind of a stopwatch about the overbearing guy who gets a stopwatch that can stop time. And and uh, you know, at the end of the episode, he breaks the stopwatch and everybody's stop, stopped in time forever except for him. So he's all alone for the rest of his life. Uh, I, I like that one a lot. So there's, you know, in the book, one thing that I do actually is, you know, Serling had this uh, classic quote where he said, and again, this is, Rod Serling was very, very harsh on his on, on himself. He was very, you know, his own, own toughest critic. And at one point he said, you know, I think about a third of the Twilight Zones were shows that I could be proud of. Uh, a third of them were passable and the other third are dogs. And I think he was off on those estimates. But what I did in the book was I actually rated each episode using that scale of just one star, two stars, three stars. That's it. I didn't use any half stars or anything like that. I just said one, two, or three. And I think I came up with 50 three-star episodes. So he was about right on that on that third of the three-star episodes. But there was nowhere near a third of 
dogs. Um, I think it was probably 27, 8 dogs. I, you know, not, that's about it. And the rest were, I thought, passable. So it's a pretty good batting average for, for a show like that. Uh, it was definitely a lot more good than bad in it. Did he ever it, work with Spielberg? Uh, yes. In fact, uh, he, uh, Steven Spielberg's very first directorial credit was for an episode of the Night Gallery, the Night Gallery pilot movie that starred Joan Crawford. Um, Serling wrote it. He wrote all three of the episodes in that Night Gallery pilot movie. It was called Eyes, and it starred Joan Crawford as a blind uh, witch. I mean, she's a, not literally a witch, but a, a really evil woman who uh, wants sight desperately and is willing to pay somebody uh, to for their eyes. There's an experimental procedure where they can transplant the cornea into a blind person's eyes, and they're supposed to give them sight for a certain amount of time. And uh, Tom Bosley plays the poor schmuck who gives up his eyes. And so she gets the transplant and the doctor, you know, there's a whole subplot with the doctor why he would do this and everything else. But um, but he does it and she has bandages over her eyes, kind of like I have the beholder. And you know, he leaves and she takes off the bandages and she can't see anything. It's it's black. It's dark. And she doesn't, you know, she's she freaks out. She thinks that the it was a, it was a failure. The, the surgery was a failure. And he was he's a quack doctor. What did he do? And she's raging around the apartment. And you know, for hour it's supposed to only last for about twelve hours. The site to begin with. And she rages around the apartment. And she falls into a chair and falls asleep because she's worn herself out so bad. And when she falls asleep, you see outside everybody outside is walking around. What's going on? It was the it was the New York blackout. It was the it was the, the electricity was out in the entire city and she didn't know it of course and then she wakes up and she sees sunlight and says what like I can see it, it worked it's, and then her eyesight lasts about five seconds and she sees the sun and she realizes she's out of time and she falls out the window to her death uh, at the end when she just realized she just had the sight for five seconds but so that was yeah that was Spielberg's very first directorial uh, job and he was certainly influenced by Serling in the Twilight Zone and in pretty much all of his work for the first, you know, 15 mm-hmm. years of his work, I think, E.T. And, you know, he produced Poltergeist, and those are both very uh, Twilight Zone-esque movies. And, and um, yeah, so I think he was very Serling, very much influenced by Serling in general. E.T. and Close Encounters, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, you, can, you, can, you can feel the flavor in a lot of the people that worked with him, what they've done and, and gone on to do, that that, that taste of, of, of um, Sterling is still there. Yeah, and of course, then then uh, Spielberg actually, you know, co-produced the Twilight Zone movie too. So, so he took it right right to that extreme. Mhm. Wow. Yeah. What what were some of the uh, since you know uh, E.T. was just brought up? Uh, you know, what what are some of the special effects from uh, you know, the Twilight Zone that you know ha- had a lasting legacy, you know, like on you know, Spielberg's works, and you know, he's well known for uh, you know, his special effects. You know, you know, Poltergeist had a lot of neat things in it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure the Star Wars. Ha- has a lot of roots in the Twilight Zone. What, you know, what are some of the special effects that you know came yeah. from the the the, the, the uh, series that 
were used uh, you, you know years later. Well, I, I don't know about. I mean, you know, it was a fairly. Um, I don't want to say low budget because it actually was a fairly. Uh, re, you know, big budget show for the time, um, and they did some very good um, makeup effects in the Twilight Zone, but they didn't do, you know, they didn't have the the capability of doing obviously really good optical effects in terms of spaceships and right. you know things like that. But I think the um, the interesting thing is how how well some of those makeup effects do hold up, uh, like the Eye of the Beholder makeup. I think right. I think those I think those pig-faced people, those, those hold up very, very well. They, they don't look, um, they're pretty horrifying, and they, they don't look that fake. You know, they look pretty pretty good. Um, so that holds up. Um, but as far as the, you know, I mean, there's a, there's, there was definitely a reason why they uh, drastically improved the gremlin on the wing of the plane, William Shatner, to the movie version. You know, there's, you know, that he looks like a fuzzy bear on the on the wing of the on the plane. You know, so that was, you know, pretty cheesy even for the time probably. Uh, so that, you know, that didn't quite make it. But yeah, so I don't think the effects and and the Twilight Zone, you know, was, of course, was never really known for the effects. I think the you know the Outer Limits was more of a, you know, but Monster of the Week kind of show where they would have these crazy looking monsters and and spaceships and things, and they probably put a lot more uh, emphasis on that than the Twilight Zone did, but really the the themes of the Twilight Zone were really what carried into into other into other genres. Okay. And and you mentioned uh yeah you, you didn't like some of the comical uh episodes and there's uh you know the one that sticks out to me is the uh Buster Keaton one that's more like a uh, you know 1920s silent movie. Uh, that that was really a uh, departure from you know say I the Beholder. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what was you know what, what did you find out about that, that episode? Well, that one, yeah, that, that was written by Richard Matheson. Um, so I really don't cover it in the in the book, but but it is, yeah, it's a big departure for the series. It was, um, yeah, it was it was del- deliberately presented as a silent film with the typical um, cue card kind of things in the middle to tell you what's going on and everything. And and Buster Keaton, of course, was just a legend, you know. So um, so they gave him kind of free reign uh, to do his thing on it. And it's um it's an interesting episode. Uh, it's not one of my favorites, that's for sure. But but it's uh, definitely a, a, an interesting episode in terms of the approach to it. You know, so um yeah, so it was uh, you know to do a silent episode on Twilight Zone was it was a nice idea, <laughs> but I don't think it quite quite uh, came to fruition. Um you know to so so well, but but other other comedic episodes, the, the comedies on the Twilight Zone tend to get uh, vilified. You know, they really people hate the comedies, and there's some that I think deserve it uh, to be hated. But for the most part, I find the comedies just to be kind of enjoyable i don't you know i don't think they're they don't offend me they're they're kind of inoffensive they're some of them are entertaining some of them are better than entertaining i mean i think there's two very very good comedies one is i mentioned a kind of a stopwatch which some people don't even see as a comedy really but i think there's a lot of comedy in that until the ending and the other one i i really really like is hocus pocus and frisbee 
Um, Hocus Pocus and Frisbee is what starred Andy Devine, who was was a comedic actor, um, and he's a tall tell. Uh, he's a liar. You know, he's a, he's the world class liar. He's constantly saying things about himself that aren't true. That he was, you know, a war hero and he was uh, an astronaut. And he was a meteorologist and he was, you know, he was all these different things. And um, these two aliens visit Earth and they, on their planet, they have no conception of the word lie. They don't know what a lie is. They think everything that this guy's been saying is the truth. So these aliens come down to take him back to their planet as an example of the best of humanity. And they kidnap him and they bring him onto their ship and, and he's, he's always playing his harmonica and uh, he ends up getting away from them because he just takes out the harmonica and starts playing it and it turns out that their ears are, you know, it's like a, it's like a death whistle to them, you know, and they start you know, collapsing from the sound of the harmonica and he runs out and goes back to his friends and of course he tells them about being abducted and of course they don't believe him because it's the, it's the boy who cried wolf. Now he's been abducted by aliens. You know, so I, I thought that that's that, that's probably my favorite of the comedies. Uh, you know, that's that's legit, legitimately funny. I certainly wrote that one and it was based on an idea from, from someone else actually. But um, So there are episodes like that that, you know, the, one of the funny things about The Twilight Zone in general and I, I talked to some about this just recently is it's amazing how your favorite episode, whatever it may be, somebody else hates it. I mean, it's like, no, hates it. And the episode you think is the absolute worst Twilight Zone episode, somebody that's their favorite episode, favorite one. They, it's not even like they think it's okay. There's somebody out there, I think an episode called Come Wander With Me from the fifth season is the worst Twilight Zone episode by a mile. And somebody out there is going to say that's their favorite episode. I guarantee it. And it's just, it's amazing how the, the series just affects different people in different ways, dramatically different ways, you know? And I guess and that's the, one of the beauties of the show. Well, there are different, okay. different strokes for different folks, absolutely. Um, and there's no accounting. But, but uh, you know, it it feels like the ones that, you know, as you're talking, I'm remembering most of these. And, and it's like um, just some of them spoke to me. Some of them had a lesson for me in them of some sort or another. And I've always hung on to them because, they they just they triggered something in me that opened me up to something else that I could you know another direction I could go or or something else in my life or it mirrored something that was going on in my life so it gave me a, a, a better perspective of what was going on so I mean he definitely was was in in putting into all of these subtle messages. That, that are quite remarkable. Um, and Nick has unfortunately dropped off, Mark, so it's going to be you and me unless he calls back in. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we have but six minutes this left. Was this, yeah, this, this was quite an amazing show, and I think he was absolutely um, – he has so much information that, that he's worth having he back on again stuff. after we've – yeah, after we both read his book, because it's certainly um, now I'm going to have to go back and I'm going to have to try Netflix and I'm going to have to see if I can find all of the all of the Twilight Zones because you know uh, he mentioned a couple that that I could I didn't remember and that I'm going to have to go back and catch up on and see if I can find them. Yeah, and I'm I'm hoping that. After we're off the air, people go to YouTube or what <laughs> and find find uh, you know, oh, he's a- back. episodes. You there? And just, 
Yep. Yeah, we're here. Hey, <laughs> my phone died. I'm sorry oh about my. that. <laughs> That's okay. It, it actually took a, took a dive, so I grabbed another phone. But you, you know, no uh, Nick, we were just saying that you know after the show, hope people uh, go to Netflix or YouTube and you know just watch you know these episodes and see them with new eyes based on what you were saying. Uh, next week they can you know have you know get get your book and. You know, watch the episodes with you know a little bit more of an understanding. I you know I I know after you know going to the uh, recreation park with Amy and you know having a chance to talk with Ann, you know meeting you and uh, Mike and all the other authors. It's just really uh, well. Actually, actually, Mark, for fifty six dollars, they can get the entire. Twilight Zone complete definitive collection on Amazon. Oh, okay. Uh, there, there, there you go. Get, get, get Nick's book to go along with it, and uh, you, know, you just have a better understanding of why the, this series is, you know remains popular. And it, it, Nick, there's like new projects coming out based on. Uh, yeah, the uh, original uh, Twilight Zone series, is that right? Yeah, well, there's a rebooted Twilight Zone that's uh, in production now. It's going to be starting and uh, airing in 2019 on uh, CBS All Access. It's uh, it's um, being headed by Jordan Peele, who uh, wrote the, the film Get Out, which was tremendous. Um, and... Uh, from everything I've seen so far, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think it's got a, a real chance. It's going to be, you know, on that specific uh, platform, CBS All Access, online, so it won't be on regular television. Um, but from what I see, they are committed to um, using it to address social issues. Uh, they know that that's part of the Twilight Zone appeal. And what I was very uh, optimistic about was when I, they, when I saw the the promo trailer uh, for it. Uh, Rod Serling is very prominently uh, appears in it. He uh, his voice begins the the narration, and Jordan Peele picks it up just at the very end. And the reason I you know was uh, optimistic about that is not just because I you know love Serling, but um, but you know the early, the rebooted Twilight Zone from the 80s from 1985. Uh, they actively campaigned against having any connection with with Sterling in the in the show credits or I mean not the credits he had to be credited with creating the show obviously but uh, but if you remember there's a there's a very brief clip uh, in that show in 1985 of Sterling kind of a ghostly image of him at the beginning of the show um, when the when the title Twilight Zone comes up he kind of is shown for a brief glimpse and then he disappears well. The producers of that show didn't even want that glimpse of him there. They they wanted this to be their show, and you know that it was gonna you know gonna taint it because people are gonna be thinking about the old show and that kind of thing. Well, this show obviously does not care. This show is making it very clear that this is Rod Serling's Twilight Zone, and we're gonna do something new with it. But we're not afraid to have him in the in the trailer and and everything else. So um, so I think that's good news and that's a, a good sign for for the series. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that, and then who knows what's gonna come after. 
uh, after that. Um, I'm hoping for other sterling-related projects to come to fruition. We'll, we'll see. Okay. Well, you can get you can get all you can actually you can watch all of them on uh, if you have Amazon Prime you can watch all of them for free. Yeah, yeah, and Netflix has four of the five seasons actually. Uh, so yeah, so there's all different ways you can you can watch these shows. Okay. I'm gonna have and, and to go back and be a, an addict. <laughs> well, yeah, you'll you'll watch one and you'll realize that you, you're an addict immediately. <laughs> you'll get you'll get swept in again. Absolutely. Nick, Nick, we're down to uh, a minute or so. Uh, What's the name of your book again? Where can they get it? Thanks, uh, Mark. Yeah, the the book is Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. It's being published by the University Press of Mississippi, and it's available on Amazon right now for pre-order, but it will be released wide um, a week from today on the 16th. And they should be able to get it, you know, at Barnes & Noble for sure. And if you go to your local Barnes & Noble, if they don't have it, they could certainly order it for you. Uh, but right now, I think the easiest way to get it would be on Amazon. And, you know, it's um, – I can't wait for people to read it. It's been a long, long journey getting this thing written and published and everything else. And I'm, you know, finally getting to the home stretch here, and I'm very excited for people to read it. And I, I, I can't wait. I can't wait for it to finally be out there. Well, I, I can certainly manage that. I imagine that. I mean, my God, how many how many years? Three, four years? You worked on this? At least four, yeah, at least. Well, what's next? Well, I do have a couple of projects in the works. One is um, one is Sterling Twilight Zone related that I can't really say, but um, but yeah, it's uh, something ambitious that I'm working on, and I, I hope I can finish it. And if I do. <laughs> Um, I'll be announcing it, but uh, but yeah, it is it is Twilight Zone related. I can I can tell you that much. Cool. Now uh, we'll have you uh, back on to discuss that. Just <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, j- just let us know. And, and uh, what's uh, the foundation, uh, the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, up to? Uh, you guys seem like you're pretty active uh, doing things. What uh, what what yeah, well, well, the first thing is, people are interested in the foundation in general. Just go to rodserling.com. That that's the web address for the for the foundation. Um, if you can make a donation, we very much appreciate it. And it all goes toward the things that we are doing. We're trying to uh, get a statue of Serling built, uh, you know, erected in Binghamton. Uh, we are eventually, you know, we're trying to get a, a Rod Serling museum in Binghamton. And just general um, acknowledgments of Rod Serling in that area because, you know, this is one of the 20th century's great writers who came from that area. And he is acknowledged in certain ways in Binghamton, but to our eyes, he hasn't been acknowledged nearly enough. So we want that to happen. And, you know, so we're working to make that happen. Of course, it's going to take money, though. So, uh, so yes, we can do that. And the website, again, RodSerling.com, will have, you know, news about the next Serling Fest and all sorts of Serling events that, you know, or links and things like that uh, for things that are going on now. Okay. And are, are you planning on the next Serling Fest being in July of 2019? We're planning it now. We haven't actually decided because the actual anniversary of the Twilight Zone, of course, will be in October of 2019, but we're not sure that that's the best time to have the actual Serling Fest. So I can tell you for certain that it will almost certainly be either October or July 
one or the other, but we haven't actually narrowed it down, uh, nailed it down yet. Okay. Well, then, you know, um, you know, like I said a couple times, it, it, it was, I thought it was a really well done conference and uh, a lot of fun, interesting people. Uh, I, I I had a great time and you know I'm I'm ready for the next one whenever it's going. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I I'm looking forward to it. So yeah, well, hopefully you'll uh, you'll be back again. Yeah. No, I, I I'm I'm planning on it. Hopefully, we can get Barbara to come come over and uh, you know we can all get together and you know just keep keep. Uh, you know, the, you know Rod's legacy alive, and uh, you know just let us know what we could do to help. Uh, I thought this was a, you know, doesn't seem like two hours passed, but it was. No, <laughs> I'm glad. Exciting I'm two glad. hours. I, I'm I'm sure the listeners are really going to uh, have a new perspective on the series and his career, and, yeah. and we want to wish you the best of luck on. The release of your new book. Yeah, Mark, well, I really appreciate it, Mark. Tonight. I really do, and uh, this was this was fun. I always, you know, I always I love talking about about Sterling and the Twilight Zone and everything that he did. So uh, you know, I'll do it anytime. Thanks so much. Yeah. Okay, Barbara, really great Thank talking you to you. Nice to meet you over the phone. Nice to meet you too, and thanks so much to, for being here tonight. So good night, Nick, and good night, Mark. Good, good night, guys. Good night. Thank you so much, Nick and Barbara.